Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Last week in financial markets was one of the most dramatic all year. The S&P 500 was up over 4.5% with even larger moves in cyclical stocks and the 10-year Treasury yield fell 35 basis points from its peak earlier in the week. So joining us here on the CIO Strategy Snapshot this morning to discuss what happened last week and why and where markets go from here is Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, what a difference a week makes. So thank you for joining us here on a Monday morning to provide some background on what we witnessed, what the week ahead and going forward might have in store. Looking forward to our conversation. Good morning, Dan. Yes, it was an eventful week and and I guess Halloween was on Tuesday and it brought hopefully some, some treats to the market. So with that, Jason, let's dive in a bit and talk about these market moves we witnessed last week. What do you think were the main drivers of this price action? You know, a few weeks ago, I wrote a note called Glass Half Full, uh, where it was making the case that, you know, if we were to get a year-end rally, the markets were to pick up, it would need a couple of conditions. Uh, One was that investors would become confident that the economy is cooling off after a red-hot summer, but it wasn't collapsing. And then the sharp rise, higher in rates would be over. That rate shock was kind of over. Uh, I think the events of last week collectively sort of affirmed that view. If we start with the Fed on Wednesday, uh, they didn't hike. That was widely expected. They wouldn't hike. Um, and then comments from Chair Jay Powell during his press conference kind of implied that the Fed essentially wants to be done, that you know they're leaving the door open for additional hikes, but they basically want to be done. Um, so that, again, you know, gave investors confidence that, you know, the rate shock is over because if the Fed isn't going to hike anymore, it sort of puts a cap on just how high yields, you know, can go. Now, there's a risk that that's wrong, but that's kind of, you know, a catalyst for the action of last week. Then on the economic data, we started to get uh, October numbers for SM, for payrolls, uh, other data as well. And by and large, it came in soft, a little bit below expectations. But relative to where the economic data was, it was a clear kind of you know, step down. So consistent with the expectations that the economy would slow in the fourth quarter, and that's playing out. Uh, and then finally, Conti, the cherry on the top of the Sunday, was that on Wednesday, the Treasury Department came out and announced uh, its total funding requirements uh, for Treasuries applying in the fourth quarter, and particularly at different maturities of how much they'd issue regarding like bills, tenure bonds, and you know, things of that sort. The fear in the market, or at least the concern, was that they would announce a large supply at the back end of the curve, like 10 year plus. That large supply would be a kind of a weight on the markets and be a factor for yields to go higher. Instead, the announcement details were kind of under what investors expected, taking away some of those supply concerns. So, between that and the Fed later that day, kind of signaling or implying it's probably done, was the reason why. Yields could fall pretty dramatically, as you alluded to, like about 35 basis points from that point onwards by the rest of the week. Uh, then you add in, you know, cooling data that, again, sort of reduces the need for the Fed to have to do more. So it's a case of sort of not bad economic data, but not really strong data being ultimately kind of good for the markets. Well, Jason, thank you for that recap. I do want to follow up, dive a bit deeper into both the Fed, the economic data, maybe beginning with the Fed. So as you pointed out, the Fed did not hike rates last week at the FOMC meeting, as was expected. But the markets also interpreted the outcome as the Fed being done. So I'm curious as to what is CIO's thinking regarding the Fed going forward? Well, the Fed being done and the why investors sort of interpreted that is just 
you know, look at some of the comments that Powell made in this press conference. Uh, one was that, you know, we've come very far with this rate hiking cycle, very far. Uh, he downplayed the job plot that was updated in September, which still had one more hike this year. Um, you know, I think if, if you kind of believe the Fed is going to be bound to that, that would be a concern. But basically, Powell saying, you know, I'm not focused on that. Those are already a little bit of out of date. Would suggest, again, they're kind of making a reason why another hike won't be necessary in December. He also said that growth running above potential, like above 2%, isn't a reason to hike. So you add all these things in and, and sort of the comments that other Fed officials had made prior to the FOMC meeting and prior to the blackout period earlier in October, it all seems like the Fed wants to be done, uh, that at least certainly they want to take their time and assess how the economy is reacting to these you know, rise in rates. Um, but likely it seems like they want to be done. They did leave the door open and they have to kind of keep the optionality open that you know things may not slow down as investors are now assuming. Uh, but I think the bar is probably pretty high for them to do another hike. The one thing that I found sort of most notable in the, you know, Powell's comments, but also in the FOMC statement, is a lot of focus on financial conditions. Uh, and in fact, it was explicitly added uh, to the statement, and there's very few changes made to it versus the prior meeting. But one of them was they were also now worried about like tighter financial conditions kind of having a negative impact on economic activity. So they made that you know explicit in a way that it hadn't been before. There were also a number of comments by Fed officials prior to the meeting that the tightening of financial conditions over the past couple of months, which was significant, you know, maybe a reason not to hike. There are estimates, and these you know, take them with a grain of salt, but estimates, I would say, the tightening of financial conditions, the rise of 10-year yield, like 100 basis points over the course of essentially the third quarter, is equivalent to three uh, Fed rate hikes, or about 75 basis points of rate hikes. Uh, so if the Fed only was thinking in September they would hike one more time, and the market basically said, no, we've implicitly hiked three more times, it's not surprising that they would not hike last week, but also that Powell would sound sort of dovish because presumably he knows if he's going to sound a little bit dovish that the market's going to kind of interpret that by an ease of financial conditions by having rates decline, equities go higher. So it essentially undoes some of that tightening. But taken, you know, that's kind of just for, for a, a thought experiment. If the tighter financial conditions were the equivalent of 75 basis points of hikes, the Fed only wanted to do 25. Not only do they not have to hike, but they actually want to then sort of talk back that tightening to get it down to something closer to 25 basis points of hikes. So I say all this to think about, like, you know, what has the Fed's mission been for the past year and a half? Obviously, it's to bring inflation down, and they want to bring inflation down by tightening financial conditions to cool the economy. By appearing to kind of bless the market uh, or give the market leeway to ease those financial conditions after significant tightening, to me, that implies almost like an implicit policy tilt from having a hawkish bias to one that's slightly dovish, worrying about you know, over-tightening, given how much things have moved. Now, if markets rally and conditions ease, that you know, may get more back into balance, and perhaps another hike is still on the table. But it was sort of notable of how they focus on conditions tightening, and they seem to feel like you know they've tightened enough. We don't want them to tighten anymore, and the bias, therefore, is goes in the other direction for the first time in over a year and a half. So to take a pulse on the economy, Jason, we did receive the first batch of October data last week. What are your takeaways? How would you characterize the state of the U.S. economy at the moment? Well, the data last week sort of affirms what has been expected of the economy would slow in the fourth quarter. Uh, on a relative basis, that is to put in context that the, fourth, the third quarter was very strong, you know, 4.9% oh, GDP. So some moderation was inevitable. Uh, but what we saw was the ISM Manufacturing Index, actually a little bit below expectations, 
suggested that while manufacturing looks like it maybe hit a bottom, it's certainly not yet on a real ramp up stage. The payrolls report on Friday for October was the, the headline number a little bit below expectations in the prior few months. The number of payrolls were revised downward. Average hourly earnings came in, uh, you know, a little bit below expectations at about 0.2% month over month. Now, I would view that as sort of good news because it means that wage inflation is moderating to a level now that the Fed could be much more comfortable with to achieve its inflation goals. You know, but there are concerns that is, if you look at the trend, it's clearly been moderating of, of you know, hiring over the course of, uh, you know, of the course of this year into last year. Uh, I would sort of think, view this though as a sign that the labor market is actually getting back into balance after extreme dislocations during the pandemic that you know, hiring every month is more in line with long-term sort of trend growth in the labor force. Uh, we're also not seeing any signs of, or this, so far there's not really any signs of the uh, weekly initial jobless claims going up. That's important because it's one of the best kind of leading indicators, you know, given its high frequency nature of coming out every Thursday morning. Uh, and it usually precipitates a rise in the unemployment rate. Uh, we've actually seen an uptick in the unemployment rate without any real increase in the initial claims, which kind of tells you that the data is a little bit funky. You have to sort of interpret it with caution. But overall, the labor market feels like it's more back in balance as opposed to really on the, on the cusp of slowing down significantly where it's going to really crack. If the labor market doesn't crack, then that should also kind of support consumer spending. What you get is likely to moderate from the third quarter, but you know the households and aggregate are still in solid financial shape. You will see sometimes statistics of like rising delinquency rates on a variety of different types of borrowing, whether it's auto loans, credit cards, things of that sort. But yes, they are rising, but from a very, very low level back in 21. Uh, and they're kind of in line with where they were pre-pandemic and relative to the last 20, 30 years are, are still actually kind of below average. And this really kind of speaks to just a, the bigger issue that households and even some larger companies really, you know, started to sort of turn out their debt, lock in low rates uh, for, for a number of years. So they borrowed long-term at low rates, and now they can actually save at, at higher yields. And this is very different than prior cycles, certainly prior to the financial crisis. Many more consumers are going to be less, less sensitive or almost immune to the rise in rates. There's certainly some or consumers who are, but given that mixed shift overall, it gives some additional buffer for the economy to withstand rates and therefore a reason for not to kind of slow down and to go into recession. So the way I would overall interpret the data that we've got last week is what we'd expect the economy slowing down uh, and it's cooling, but cooling towards a softest landing uh, and a recession is not looking likely in the next couple of quarters. As you look further out of next year or beyond, you know, the risk does rise, but I think we still feel pretty comfortable that the economy is trending towards a softest landing over the next you know, 12 months. Uh, and sort of slowdown in data is consistent with that. It's sort of a result of the Fed trying to tighten what it, what it wants, as opposed to a real negative warning sign for the state of the economy overall. Well, thank you, Jason, for sharing that outlook. If we move back over to the markets, I'm curious, after such big moves in a very short period of time, what should we expect now? Well, you know, there's going back to my comments about, uh, you know, the potential for a year-round rally. What are the conditions that need to be you know, put in place? It was, I'd say... It's not a consensus view. A lot of people thought that was possible, in part because you know it often happens. You know, November, December collectively are among the best time periods of the year. There's a good seasonal component to it, uh, so there was that sort of thought that that could play out if the Fed was actually done and we see some cooling in the economy. Now the question is, kind of where do we go from here? Because the S&P 500 is up about six percent from its low just a little over a week ago. 
Uh, and then with the yields declining as much as they have, they probably already retraced a lot of the you know, decline that we would have anticipated in the very near term. So it's the markets at, at such big moves in the kind of very fast and furious, almost violent, that it's reasonable to think there could be a bit of a breather. It wouldn't be surprising to see yields back up a little bit, equities pull back you know, in the next couple of days. Uh, but the overall fundamental story for us was still stays the same, which we, we kind of thought there was attractive opportunities across all asset classes. Uh, except now, you know, the upside potential, the return potential is some of that's already been you know, taken up overall. So the overall view that we have for, uh, you know, the you know the next six months, 12 months, hasn't you know, directionally changed. As far as the rest of this year goes, you know, given where we are, the S&P is kind of at the middle, close to the middle of its range. It's been for the past roughly five or six months between 4,200 and 4,600. We're a little bit below 4,400. Uh, Markets haven't really stayed steady for a period of time. They've either continued to go to the high end of the range or go to the low end of the range, given sort of where we are, given sort of the, the, the macro situation kind of playing out. And particularly given investor position, I think the risk is more that we kind of keep growing higher at some point, you know, between now and year end, as opposed to going lower. If we look at another fact that I didn't mention for price action last week, it was just how important the technical story was. A lot of investors had gotten bearish in September and October. Short positions increased. And if you look at trading behavior, what happened last week, a lot of equity investors, especially in hedge funds, is there significant short covering. And you can see baskets of stock that are the most shorted, they rallied far more or far stronger than the overall market did. So a lot of short covering last week, it wasn't if investors added sort of new positions overall, which means investor allocations are still relatively modest on risk. And if markets do start to move higher, then they almost have to chase into year end and therefore provides a bit of a technical tailwind. So with the macro conditions being sort of favorable for this to continue, then the technical position meaning you know, also supportive, I think the bias is toward things going higher between now and year end. But it's a short time period, a lot can happen. There's geopolitical risks that could escalate. So I'd say it's a pretty low conviction call, but a direction of travel still seems to be a little bit more higher than lower between now and the end, the end of the year. So Jason, market conditions seemingly lately very fast moving. You factor in these economic developments, you've walked us through this morning, what should investors be doing at the moment? Well, one thing I, you know, you kind of used the, the price action of last week of how quick it was and how it was across the board. Uh, that's consistent with, you know, kind of the guidance we've been you know, giving for the past couple of months about making sure your portfolio is in balance, you know, get in balance is one of the key messages and focus. The reason being is that we saw opportunities across different asset classes, but also last week was a reminder that when markets narratives change and there's pivots, that things move very quickly and they can move significantly. Uh, and if you're not allocated or not positioned for it, you know, a good chunk of the upside for an asset class can happen before you can even really kind of respond. So making sure that your portfolio is diversified and balanced, I think that's last week's price action is a reminder of that. And we don't think, you know, the opportunity set across asset classes has, you know, at least changed. The magnitude has in terms of total returns, but not the overall distribution. So that's one thing. The second point that we've been, you know, making is to, you know, buy quality bonds look to maybe extend the duration of your portfolio with a tenure at 5%. That was a really attractive entry point. You know, we thought that, you know, if you could go out of cash, that's yielding a little over 5% and lock in 5% for the next 10 years and not worry about the reinvestment risk. If the Fed does cut rates starting at some point next year, that's a good level. Now we're down to four and a half, 4.6% of the tenure. It's eaten up some of those potential returns, but there's still definitely you know, some downside risk or, or potential for yields to go lower over the course of the next six months or so. Uh, so again, locking in you know, some of the yields where they are, extending duration, you know, that's a prudent strategy, especially at kind of higher quality fixed income, whether it's treasuries, 
high quality munis, investment in corporate bonds, things of that sort. Uh, and the final thing is we've talked about, uh, you know, look for equity laggards. What we saw last week is, while well, the S&P was up, you know, about 6% from its lows. We've seen the Russell up even more than that, closer to 10%. Uh, some things like, you know, uh, non-profitable tech stocks, uh, you know, more cyclically you know, sensitive stocks, those rallied the hardest, you know, kind of the laggards relative to the, the magnificent seven. So again, sort of thinking about your, your overall allocation, if you're concentrated in tech, and I know some people wanted to re-up the tech position after a bit of a pullback during earnings season, look for other parts of the market because if we get this kind of softer slanting, those are areas of the market that are probably best positioned to you know, really outperform, even if the overall market level and the index level, the upside is not particularly you know, strong at this point in time. Jason, very helpful this morning hearing some context around what has been driving markets as of late. So thank you very much for dropping by top of the morning to share that, but as well, CIO's near-term market outlook and guidance when it comes to positioning. So looking forward, Jason, as always, to picking back up with our conversation in the week ahead. Thank you for your insights today. You're welcome. Have a great week. Again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.